0: Welcome to Movable Dough. this is Steve Danielson. Join me as I interview and promote living composers. In this series of interviews, I talk with composers about their musical journeys, their past successes and setbacks, and their current projects. For more information about this podcast, as well as a complete archive of episodes, please visit sdcompose.com slash movabledoe. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Doe. My guest today is Joan Shimko. Joan is widely recognized as a highly influential American composer with over 100 published choral works. Known for her lyricism and rhythmic integrity, her works have been performed throughout North America and abroad. In 2010, she received the prestigious ACDA Raymond W. Brock Memorial Commission, for which she wrote All Works of Love. Joan has been a resident composer with Do Jump Movement Theater and has performed from LA to Broadway. She currently lives in Portland, Oregon, where she founded the Viriditas Vocal Ensemble in 1994. She recently retired from conducting Aurora Chorus, which she conducted for 26 years. Joan Shimko, thank you for joining me today on Movable Doe. My pleasure. So when I visited your website, I was immediately captivated by the first sentence I read on the homepage. It says, my goal is to compose music that invites the audience in while challenging the notion that accessibility and musical integrity are incompatible concepts. So can you start off our interview today by explaining sort of what you mean by that?
1: Sure. Um, that's absolutely true. Um, it, it's not exactly the what I set out to do. Like, I am going to compose music that is accessible. It's it's just that what I have found over the years and what I hear from singers and audiences alike is that my music is accessible, that it also has a great deal of integrity. It's very uh, solid. It's very, it's crafted. And yet it it really reaches in. And this is actually my mission. My mission is not so much to be accessible, but to open consciousness, open hearts. Mm. Um, And as as an artist, just purely As an artist, I have a very simple mission, which is that I want the person uh, to just feel something, you know? Yeah. I think that, uh, and that's what the arts does so well, is it just wakes up our consciousness, because I think a lot of us go through life rather, particularly in the last many years, (laughs) somewhat numbed by, you know, culture, circumstances, politics, personal, difficult, whatever. I think that we, we, we were just trying to, to, to hang on and cope, you know, and I think the arts just really, uh, just breaks things open for people and allows them to be present with whatever it is that they're feeling.
0: Yeah. I wonder if your, your piece, it takes a village sort of as an example of this, you know, I've performed this piece with my own high school choir. I've seen yeah. middle school choirs perform it, and yet it was music- musically satisfying enough for the University of Delaware Chorale when they premiered the piece, so.
1: Yeah, it was, which actually is what, what put that piece on the map was that performance. It was a, it was a fabulous performance. Um, you know, really what my intent is, initially I start every work with the intent of illuminating a text or illuminating an idea, you know, amplifying something that is important, that I find important or that moves me. Uh, It takes a village. It's so funny because I'm known by that piece and I probably have only written two, three pieces like it. You know, (laughs) the rest of my my catalog is really not like that work. However, that piece is very much comes from me because uh, actually when I lived in Seattle, during that time, uh, actually is when I went to u I was doing some postgraduate work. Um, and I took a class called Ethnomusicology in the classroom. And uh, the woman, Barbara Reeder, who led that, uh, was a pioneer in that she was the first American educator to bring African music into the classroom. Mm. And so she brought a man from Ghana into our classroom. And uh, basically I had this huge awakening to something that had been in me since I was a kid. When I was a kid, I wanted to be a drummer. And in this class, we, we were putting together these African pieces, which the African ideal is that every person plays their part and they play it in sync with one another. And when you do that, you create this, this energy. And it's that energy that propels West African music and also in South African music, it propels the soloist to take off the energy, and then the energy just you know builds. I experienced that in this class that I took uh, with Barbara Reader and Kofi. Uh, Kofi Annan was was uh, my teacher, and I ended up studying African drumming with him. That music turned something on in me that was uh, it, it was bliss. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking just about grooving to the music. I'm talking about really my whole body lighting up. It takes a village. Came about because. I was doing something that I have done throughout my career, which was I wanted to fill a program need. So, I mean, I'm very practical also. and So I had decided that my spring concert was going to be called Heartbeat. And I just had this idea. And that adage, actually, I don't even remember how I became aware of it, but at any rate, I thought, oh, that's great. What a great idea. And So I wrote a very short verse and I, all I, oh, the other thing I did, With African music, and, and this is really an illustration, and, and where where that piece came from, is I performed in a uh, uh, African marimba ensemble for two years. I played, you know, this marimba music, which was based on mbira music, not piano music. This is still one of the most high, the biggest highs in my life as a performer was playing the same dang four-bar phrase over and over and over and over and over again. And, but with six other parts connected and with the soul of us. and the energy was just incredibly uplifting. And um, So that's where it takes A Village came from, was my experience performing Shona music and just my understanding of, of uh, what, what West African musicians do. They play their part and they, the, the, the absolute virtuoso do their thing,
0: right? Yeah. But you know i uh I actually would like to go back to sort of your early music education, sure, so I saw that you started piano lessons around eight and later we were, we were in your high school choir, yeah However, I also saw that somewhere in there you were leading music for mass at your church, yeah, so yeah. how old were you when you started doing that?
1: actually, I first well see i'm I am a product of Vatican II, and and I know that this music has been much maligned and I agree with some of it, but you know, folk mass music, that's, that's what I played. And I think okay. I played my first mass when I was in sixth grade. Oh, wow. You know, um, my family, I'm the youngest of five, we were all, uh, my parents, you know, as a lot of first generation Americans do valued education and also valued the arts quite very much so. So all of us uh, had the opportunity to have piano lessons with the local nun as I said, I'm the youngest, and my I had two older sisters who were really quite good playing the piano. So I didn't really get much time at the piano in terms of practice time. But I I, I remember as a kid I could not wait to have piano lessons. I mean, I started learning their repertoire by ear. I would I would play you know their easy recital pieces you know. Before, anyway, so yes, um, the the leading music at mass, particularly in my high school years, became a real big deal for me but my and it's so interesting you bring this up I was, again you're surprising me with your question is <laughs> because um the session I'm going to be leading or presenting I should say at ACDA my theme is uh sacred music for all in an age of anxiety and it actually kind of piggybacked on a session that I was going to present at the world symposium last summer that session um I I have been thinking about my my spiritual origins, you know, and that desire or ability to lead in that way and that setting really does relate to the composing career that I have because uh, I was, uh, you know, my parents were very devout Roman Catholics, you know, uh, uh, being Catholic was as much of my identity as my Nationality, which, if you grew up on the south side of Chicago, which I did, you know, nationality and what parish you belong to were the two things uh-huh. people wanted to know about you, <laughs> right? So, in, in the session that I'm presenting, I mean, I, I speak to this because uh, when my parents uh, discovered I was gay in my early 20s, uh, that had a really devastating um, impact on me. Uh, because I so much associated my parents and their support, love, and support with Catholicism, you know. Sure. And I, you know, I have absolutely no regrets about my my upbringing. In fact, you know, I, like I said, I'm one of five. All, every one of us are are really good, compassionate people, and I really believe that that is from weekly hearing scripture. Oh, sure. you know, and and, and uh, th- it was a very much a part of who I am. And so what I have found, and if you look at my catalog, which I have been as I've been preparing this, this session, most of my catalog is rooted in universal expressions of the sacred. And I always, and when I'm writing music or, or, or selecting texts, I, I tend to believe that if something moves me And as I'm composing, and I'm sure you've experienced this too, as I'm composing, if, as we're composing, if something grabs us or moves us, or if, you know, I know that that's going to to move other people. So these, these um, universal expressions of the sacred are things like, you know, texts that celebrate that which connects us to each other and to whatever divine spark you may or may not believe in these universal expressions awaken awe Mm -hmm. they awaken compassion as i said you know they're non-patriarchal they're earth-centered they provide solace and courage and they nurture this yearning for good so this was a really long answer to your question about playing (laughs)
0: that's all right but but it's all
1: it's all it's all connected you know (laughs) for me it is all connected
0: yeah I could sit here and listen to you all day so it's all good (laughs) so here's a question for you where along your musical journey did you decide that you wanted to pursue composition
1: I I mentioned before that I uh would often write music because there was a need Mm -hmm. (laughs) and that that's how I came to composing when I moved to Seattle I had a rough time because, uh, believe it or not, at that time, Seattle was uh, suffering a depression. Uh, it was way back in the day, in the 70s. Uh, there was something called the Boeing bust, and of course, lumber and the aviation industry uh, were the two primary industries. I only wanted to do a high school fire. There were no um, job openings uh, for high school positions. And actually, the only music openings were far flung, you know, up in Edmonds or their northern suburbs. I, I Mount Lake like Terrace, you know, I was applying and I was like, why do I apply? I don't want to live out there. I don't want to. You know, I, I think in a way I was kind of a late bloomer, you know, I, I needed to just kind of explore. I needed to find community, all those things. And so a community found me actually. And it was it was this uh, feminist women's ensemble there was a whole movement of lesbian feminist um, uh, ensembles that was kind of along, not related to, but alongside the gay uh, men's chorus choral movement. Mm -hmm. They all came about around the same time in the late 70s. So this was was an ensemble and I'll just, you know, basically it started out as like a 16 voice, y'all come. You know, when we have an opening, whoever's on the list will come in next. (laughs) Whoever wants to conduct can conduct. And we definitely kept the spirit of that a lot, but in the 10 years I was there, we went from there to being a 40 voice select auditioned ensemble. That was actually, you know, pretty great. However, I had a great need personally, and I knew it would be good for the ensemble to do, for lack of a better term, concert literature. We did a lot of arrangements of social justice music in particular, but in that t- at that time is nothing like it is now there was hardly any really substantive music for adult women's choir sure and uh, you know there were schlocky folk song or pop song arrangements Well, there still are those
2: <laughs> to be perfectly <laughs> honest uh,
1: cuz there's a market for them you know why not or there were you know SSA versions of SATB greats mm-hmm. you know that totally lacked a bottom so i well i learned how to write for voices because i started out arranging and then i started composing for that group at the same time i also uh got a position at an american baptist very progressive uh congregation same thing you know the music in the music library did not uh, fit their their liberation theology mission using gender inclusive language in worship you know Mm -hmm. so i wrote music for that so I started writing for the Seattle Women's Ensemble. And again, like I explained to you, when I heard African music, when I was composing, I lit up in a way that I had not experienced uh-huh. before, that I had not experienced writing music before. I had experienced that as a listener from right. a very young age, you know, that, that, that just that, that bliss. And that was that bliss that made me want to study music in the first place, that feeling, you know. So here I was composing music and I was experiencing something along that line that also made me feel connected. Mm-hmm. It found me in a way. Mm-hmm. I, I, really, I really think of composing in the true sense of the word you know, as a vocation, a vocation. Yeah. So I felt uh, called to compose. Uh, Of course, I certainly got a lot of, you know, personal exhilaration and satisfaction from it. But I keep coming back to this need to express, you know, my own yearning for good, which I think is a universal yearning for good. So this has been on my mind for for decades. Um, I mean, I was, I got a uh, residency to go to Brazil, Um, oh my gosh, has it been that long, 2009. And uh, I was there during the festival of Yemaja, who was one of the uh, Orishas. I've had this thing about Yemaja for for a long time. She is the goddess of, or the Orisha of of the waters, literally of the river, because in West Africa it was the river, but the people who settled, well they didn't settle, the people who brought to Brazil, they carried their religion with them. And so she became, also of the, of the ocean of the, of the uh-huh. waters. So I was intrigued by this. I wrote a proposal that was about creating, you know, something about Yimajan and I got this fabulous residency in, in Brazil for six weeks. So once I got to Brazil and I was there for this extraordinary festival in Bahia that happens on February 2nd every year uh, to celebrate and uh praise and worship Yemen Jacques, I honestly I felt, who the heck am I to write a piece about, you, must, you know, you are surra- surrounded by you know this music and the music of Candomblé, which is the which is the the root religion. And I was studying, you know, I was studying or reading about researching Candomblé and all the and I just was feeling like that said, I, I didn't write the big piece about Yema Ja, you know, yeah. so that piece River was written, I, I was commissioned by Cincinnati Children's Choir, which is a fabulous, really um, a wonderful program. Uh, Robin Lana is the director. And uh, like I said, I just had this this penchant for writing things that matter. And I'm like, what an incredible opportunity to write something for young people. And I'm like, well, what am I going to pick as a text? And I have thought so many times and continue to, to just feel for young people growing up right now mm-hmm. and, or for parents who are raising young people not knowing if the world we're living in now is going to be the world we're going to have in even 30 years.
0: Yeah. Know? We're going to take a quick break and then we'll have a chance to listen to some of your compositions. Okay. Welcome back. I'm talking today with Joan Shimko. So I'd like to start today with Nada Te Turba, available for both SATB and SSAA voicing with cello accompaniment. So I liked your use of text in the piece as you use the original Spanish and the English translation sort of modularly to create your structure. So what was your purpose in using both languages in this piece?
1: I wanted the audience to take in the healing words of this prayer in the in the moment. You know, how many concerts do you go to where you have the program open and you're following the
2: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> you're following the translation as you're listening? And I I honestly think that takes away from your experience of the of the whole of the, of the piece of the music. And this prayer, uh, dear friend, you're given it to me. Uh, and, sh- and she was actually fluent in Spanish, so she was very familiar with it. And I, I carried this prayer around with me for a while before I said it. Mm-hmm. And when I did decide to say it, I actually wrote it for Veritas uh, vocal ensemble. I knew that this prayer had was was powerful, you know, uh, I, it was healing. And again, I wanted the audience to feel that energy as they listened. So that is why I inserted, you know, the English um, along in along with the Spanish. I was actually the first, I I don't think I'm the first person to to write bilingual music by any any, uh, stretch of imagination. However, I was contacted last year by someone, a doctoral student doing a study of settings of that prayer. Mm. And she kind of tracked down all the composers who have said it. And after me, some composers have done the same thing. But she, she got back to me. Because I told her, I said, you know, I think I'm the first person to have done that. <laughs> and she got back to me and she said, you were right. You know, yours is the first composition that shows up with that treatment of the text. Yeah. I, I just think it makes it more powerful. I think the feeling of the piece, it does have a soothing feeling to it. Um, but I, I don't. It would not be the same work without that that back and forth between between the languages. That thing has a ton of meter changes. What the heck is that about? And if you look at all of my music, you will find um, that more often than not, I have meter changes. And the reason for that is because I pay so close attention to the text. I, I want to follow the natural flow of the poetry or it's, I've off, I often set uh, prose lyrics also. Um, and I want it to sound natural as it's sung. I mean, I, honestly, I go nuts when I hear um, vocal works where high points of phrases are on really unimportant words, you know,
2: mm-hmm.
1: it drives me nuts. And the reason is because I, I believe that the composer is putting their, their musical idea as being of primary importance of the text, I never, I never feel that way. I always feel that it's the most of that, that, as a composer of vocal music, of choral music, it's my responsibility to illuminate the text. I'm setting it because it moved me, you know, <laughs> and I'm putting this energy and effort into that, and because I want other people to hear this text not because I want them to hear my music, I mean, yeah, I want them to hear my music, but I'm creating this music to support this text. Okay, yeah. so when I, I, I have a really clear memory of, of, of composing that at the because I, I remember just kind of like laying back and just, and, and I often will start writing a piece like this, and, and I think a lot of choral composers do as well, I just, I just say the lines over and over again, and I, and I look for the natural rhythm You know within the text and to me this prayer kind of has this kind of a feeling to it i'm just going to kind of do a visual to it you know kind of like don't worry it's going to be okay everything's passing you know Mm -hmm. and that's kind of how how i said it you know all things are passing you know Nada te se pasa. Dios no se muda. And I, so I laid in, in bed. Actually, I remember <laughs> I was in bed. And I'm saying those words over and over again. And then, and then I just, I think I started singing at first. I mean, I often, I write a lot of my primary musical lines. I always sing them. I don't plunk them out at the piano. Uh, I use piano uh, to inspire me to inspire melody. Sometimes I will start out with like a a riff or a chord progression just to kind of get the juices flowing. But as far as vocal lines go more often than not, I create those with my own voice. Mm -hmm. So, so with this piece, you know, and so that, that just started coming out. So when you, when you are paying attention to the natural stresses of the words, and because I'm a conductor too, I feel it in my body. And because I feel it in my body, I want those those syllables that are to be stressed, I want them to be in the natural t- stress gesture, which is a downbeat or, a you know, so, um, that's, why there's so many, <laughs> that's why there's so many meter changes, you know, um, and, and, you know, in this piece, I want to talk a little bit about that middle section it's so different than the rest of it and and again it this this piece has a dramatic arc you know it's laying out the you know here's the problem you know you're you're suffering from something okay don't worry all things are passing it goes from that opening section to this to this la paciencia and the la paciencia section is very dynamic and almost um, celebratory in a way and the and the reason is because it's because it, it's singing about patience. I mean, the line is patience obtains all things. So that's, that's the key to getting through whatever the suffering is that you're carrying with you is patience. So yeah, so there's victory in patience, you know, and that's why that part of the piece has this tremendous movement and this exhilaration, you know, but then it, but then it all comes back down again to this, to this more gentle, but, but the singer has changed and even though melodically it, it refers back to the original melody, it's, not, it's, it's, it's different. It's not quite the same.
0: Mm. All right. Well, we're going to take a moment here and we're going to listen to Nada Teturbe. Let's go next to Odie for okay. a cappella choir. So this traditional text, Odie Christus Natus Est, Today Christ is Born, has been set by composers for centuries. And I love how you call back to the text's origins with the opening unison chant. Where did you take this text to give your own voice to it? How did you how did you approach this to be unique and original with it?
1: Um it was pretty obvious. I mean, the opening chant was to hearken to to um, I, you know this 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 text originated in chant. You know, right? You know, I was talking before about uh, you know my own foundations and background in Judeo-Christian um, uh, community and, and theology, and I also talk, spoke about uh, uh, my my first. Group that I cut my teeth on, you know, Seattle Women's Ensemble. We never sang traditional Christian music. We didn't even really uh, present Christmas concerts, you know, because we were actually we had we were Christians. There was actually a couple nuns in the group. We had Jews. We had atheists. Whatever. We did not sing about Jesus. We did not sing about God. So, being someone coming from a traditional Classical background, you know, whatever. I kind, of, I kind of felt like I missed out on on the getting to do the traditional um, Christmas literature, which is mm-hmm. so rich, right? So, in in creating this piece, I had I had more leeway with what I wanted to do with this group and 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 with the programming, and I just dove I just dove into it. Uh, how I made it my own. Is well. First of all, the opening chant is totally my own. I mean, it's not Mm -hmm. related to any any traditional um, chant, but it 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 does have that you know that feeling. The piece itself is is exhilarating rhythmically. You know, honestly, Steve, this is just one of those pieces that just poured out of me. I mean, it's one of those pieces that I remember composing, but it's like because there's a couple places in this in this piece um, that you know and listening to really fine performances of them um that they're they're just kind of transcendent there's like this i mean they're like they're like hallelujah moments you know <laughs> you know what i mean but you just feel in your body i did not Fantastic. i did not start out and say okay i'm gonna have the key change here and then i mean probably the only really like i'm sure there were more conscious decisions but the really conscious decision um that i made was to bring the original chant theme in layered in uh, with the gloria and Chelsea's deo and that was like i really had to wrangle with that and, and i wanted to do that and i made that happen but as far as everything up to that point it was it was just intuitive you know all of the shifts the harmonic shifts that happen you know and uh I really, this is one of my favorite children. I really, I really um, love this piece. I think both because I feel like it's kind of equal parts. Um, you know, I spoke earlier, I didn't call it this, but it's like being in the flow, you yeah. know, it's equal parts listening. I just listen for the next thing to happen. And it really involved. Uh, I think, some real composerly uh, craftsmanship as, as well. And, um, and I think it's just a, uh, um, like I said, it's exhilarating, it's exhilarating to sing. And for me, you know, the whole test of time thing, it's not so much the test of time, it's a test of how many times you've heard it, mm-hmm. you know? And if you can hear a piece and if it still, you know, moves you, then, then, then I think it's a good piece. Let's just put it that way. When you, as a composer, you know, when you can really feel confident about something really being good work, you know, I, I feel like ODA is one of those pieces.
0: Well, let's take some time and let's listen to ODA. next let's dip our toes in river. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I love the energy of this piece. As you play out the opening line, there's a river flowing very fast, but in the middle the song drastically slows down. We come to the line. I'm only one, but I am one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. And then you end with this triumphant music on the text. We are the ones we have been waiting for. Mm -hmm. There seems to be so much that you want to say through this piece. Can you talk us through sort of the creation of it?
1: Sure. Um, this was written for an advanced treble ensemble, but primarily high school age kids. So, you know, young adults, really, I wanted to address something that if I was a young person that I would be very much concerned with. So the text, I found a couple of references to it online. It's funny; I haven't done a search in the last several years. It'd be interesting to do a search now. But it, it kept coming up as this message from the Hopi elders, which again I don't know if that's true or not.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I, I came upon a couple of different versions of it, but but most mostly it held its integrity as a, as a complete text. And in the program notes of the piece, I included the entire text which i did not set i only included that there is a river now flowing very fast it is so great and swift that there are those who will be afraid they'll try to hold on to the shore they'll feel that they are being torn apart it's that feeling of holding on gripping to the shore the shore is the status quo the shore the, the shore is getting to live my life exactly how I've been living it and how I want to continue to live it. The river is where we're going. And if we're going to get to someplace good, that river has to be a river of change. And it's going by. I mean, our opportunity to jump in and, and change and, and make the change is, is, is you know, it, <laughs> our opportunities or are, are the time is, is getting shorter. Anyway, but there's, there's other things from this original Hopi elder text that I wanted to convey in the piece without setting all the words. And that is that you must tell the people that this is the hour. There are things to be considered. Where are you living? What are you doing? What are your relationships? This is all, I'm talking a little bit about about piano accompaniment here for a second. And I have to tell you, I love when, you know, when I go work with a choir or whatever and the accompanist comes up to me and says, I so enjoy playing your piece. You, know? <laughs> you must, you must, you must, you know, you must be a pianist. Which, by the way, I play piano. I don't consider myself to be a pianist, you know, but you know, I do, I do have that background. But what I will say is that I always want the accompaniment to be to t- help tell the story. You know, I mean, I, I, in a lot of ways, I think of myself as a storyteller. So I want the accompaniment to help tell the story. I want the accompaniment to be another voice. So in this piece, that rather rough piano riff, it's relentless. It doesn't, it, it keeps going. I mean, I think the whole first, you know, two thirds of the piece, it doesn't, it doesn't let up. It, it changes keys, but it's exactly the same. And that is that, that clinging and holding on and over it on the text is, is the fluidity of the river, the vocal line, and it's challenging to sing, you know, it's so these 16th note patterns. There is a river, there is a river now flowing fast, flowing very fast, you know, you know, that's moving. The accompaniment is like rigid. So, th- you know, this goes on, and it just gets angstier and angstier with at a polyphony. And as, as, as complex as the relationships, the singing, the, the singers, the relationships get, the accompaniment is still the same thing. And then, and then you get on to this, uh, you get to this moment where it's the first time that the singers have sung together in rhythmic unison. They'll try to hold on, <laughs> you know, they're all, and they're all, and they're trying to, and then, you know, there's another, there's another key change. And there's still, there's this struggling with personal responsibility, with choice, with, you know, all, all of these things. And it's because we're afraid, you know, it so says they're afraid they're going to be torn apart. Life is not going to be the same. Well, you know, life's not going to be the same if you don't let go. So, you know, finally we get to this place, the place that you mentioned, where there's this call, this calm place in the middle of the peace. Everett uh, Hale was a uh, early 20th century uh, Unitarian minister. Oh my gosh, just, just a man of extraordinary optimism and a believer, which is obvious from this text, that one person can make a difference. And knowing that I was writing this for this, originally for this group of young people, I thought, and I remember when I came upon this idea to suddenly to set this with one clear, you know, the beautiful clarity of those young voices, to have that, that melody, you know, ring out with this, with this one uh, youthful voice, I knew would be really quite powerful, and, and, and it is, you know, in, in, in performance. And honestly, I think the other thing about climate change is that it's so overwhelming. It's very, very, very easy to go to that place. Well, the choices I make really aren't going to make any difference because it's, well, it's the choices we make and how we use our voices to talk to the people who do have the power. So there's a struggle. We get to this place of realization that I can do something. And because I can, I must. And... If there and if if God is a being that you place trust and in, in, in faith in, well then God willing, I will be able to do this thing.
0: All right. Well we're gonna take a moment here and listen to River. I'd like to end today by talking about your major work, Shadow and Light, for SATB Chorus, Chamber Orchestra, and Soprano, Mezzo Soprano, and Tenor Soli. This is a fascinating work written on the subject of Alzheimer's dementia. So could you tell us about this commission and the process you went through creating the libretto and the piece as a whole?
1: Sure. I was asked by Diane Ritalik, uh, who is the Artistic Director of Eugene Vocal Arts here in Oregon, if she had brought me down to Eugene before to do work to workshop a couple of my pieces with, with her group. So, you know, we knew each other and she was very familiar with my music. And she was planning on writing a grant, huge grant, Oregon Cultural Trust. It was a, a cultural and arts initiative. And she wanted to commission a work really to honor her own mother and grandmother. Her grandmother died of Alzheimer's. She watched her mother care for her grandmother. Her mother then got Alzheimer's.
2: Mm.
1: And, uh, I can't imagine how that must feel for Diane, you know, saying, well, what's, what's coming for me. Right. So she wanted to present a work about Alzheimer's and there is a piece out there. I think it's, uh, Robert Cohen. I think I'm saying his name correctly called Alzheimer's stories. And she was familiar with that, but it didn't really speak to her and so she wanted to commission a new work for chorus and orchestra and i will be perfectly honest what i heard was do you want to write a piece for chorus and orchestra <laughs> and i said yes absolutely you know put my name down you know i mean what how many opportunities do you get for a commission to write for for, for orchestra yeah. you know? and i had a great feeling about it and sure enough uh it was funded in was funded to the full extent only three organizations got the full funding and it was for me to not only compose the work but to create the loretto as i've said i rely heavily on text i'm also a storyteller and i can't write anything compose anything rather until i know what what i'm setting i mean I, I i did play with some themes and some you know ideas musical ideas but i i knew that i really couldn't uh dig in until I had that so I researched for, oh, for at least six to eight months I just read
2: mm.
1: and gathered material and uh it became very clear to me that this could not be a 30-minute work you know, like like Robert work he really kind of focuses on on uh, one man's story and he does make the ending I think the last move in that is rather universal you know but really I just felt like I wanted to write a piece that no matter your experience with Alzheimer's that you would be in the audience and you could relate to what Mm -hmm. was being sung. So again, I go back to this idea of universality, right? I had so much, I had so much material. I I relied on, I mean, I read a lot of science actually. I wanted to understand the disease first. So I, what I did in a sense is I programmed the arc of the piece. It's really more of of an oratorio, actually. Um, I broke it into three sections. And the first section focused more on the experience of the person with Alzheimer's, their coming realization that something's not right, but just focused on them. And the mezzo-soprano, it was important to me that the the primary person with Alzheimer's be a woman because uh, more more women than men actually um, have Alzheimer's um and she's a mezzo because you know it's a older older mm-hmm. voice um and the middle section was to focus on the care partner and i again as doing my research i really started calling these people care partners not caregivers because when you're a caregiver it's like you're doing all the giving and you're not getting anything back but really you're a care partner because what i what i explored was that they are really Depending on how you approach it and deal with it, you can get a lot back actually from being a mm-hmm. cure partner. Okay, but it's grim, and the middle section really does does speak to that to that experience. And one of my, I'm looking at the libretto right now. There's a very short piece. It's called a choice. It says there are moments when you have a choice: fall apart or take a deep breath and just do what needs to be done. Find a new loneliness and a new strength. And again, that's that's an idea that in, in any part challenge in your life, you can relate to. You have to make a choice. Fall apart or just, you know, do it. That particular text, oh my God, came from a graphic memoir. You know, graphic novels are very popular. This was, it was called Tangles extraordinary story uh, that a young um, graphic artist wrote about her mother who had early onset um, Mm -hmm. Alzheimer's. But anyway, so again, I I took, my sources were from all over. I mean, the piece opens with a poem from, from Emily Dickinson, which in the context of Alzheimer's has a whole different feel, it's like, I felt a cleaving in my mind as if my brain had split. I tried to match it scene by scene, but could not make them fit the thought Behind I strove to join into the thought before that sequence raveled out of reach like balls upon a floor. So, you know, again, within the, that's the first piece and that's like, uh, you know, person with Alzheimer's care partner. And then the last uh, segment, the last third of the work is about this relationship and really about this idea of I call it I and thou, which of course is Martin Buber um, philosopher, that in order order to to feel empathy or compassion, you you cannot treat someone like an it, Mm -hmm. you know? And so disease, old people, Alzheimer's are all often treated like things, like it's. You are not a person, you are your disease, right? So the third part is about approaching, you know, coming to the end of the story with, with just being with the person where they are. And, and that's what, you know, um, uh, studies and research and how people, you know, memory care units, what they've come to is to not day after day, tell, tell, tell grandma that, no, honey, your, your husband died. He, He died or, you know, he's been dead for Because every time that person with Alzheimer's hears hears this, they suffer over and over and over again, hearing it as if for the first time, you know? The last segment is about um, being in that place of relationship with the person with Alzheimer's. And um, and I'm just gonna just share, again, a very short text. It's one of my favorite um, texts. And a couple of the texts actually were written by uh, people who wrote poetry uh, you know, whose loved ones had Alzheimer's and they were in a poetry project and I, I found this wonderful little book that had um, poems, an anthology of poems and this is, um, you know you love me but you can't recall my name so we just hold hands you know, it's this beautiful little haiku written by this man and when I contacted him for permission to use it he was, he was so gracious turns out he's like some, you know high power attorney in the Bay Area you know and 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 he was just so anyway which you know alzheimer's touches everywhere. everybody all walks yeah. of life you know everywhere and the piece ends and by the way this this last movement um there are 16 movements <laughs> this last movement is a standalone um piece um it's called love bears all things and it's from corinthians 1 corinthians And it's love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. That's how the piece ends. Uh Um, It was uh, an amazing experience. I, I, I felt in the way that I went about, okay, there's another, this is important too about the libretto because I honest I was overwhelmed. I had so much, you know, trying to coordinate. How am I going to, structured this, you know. And I had this, I had a really good idea that came to me when I, um, there's something called the mini mental exam, which um, anybody who ages, you know, or is perhaps experienced some kind of cognitive difficulties will get this exam. And it you, know, you remember Trump talking about woman, man, car, or whatever the heck he was talking about, the three words, there, this is, this is a, a question in this exam, which is, um, in fact, this is one of my favorite piece. I wrote a tango um, because I mentioned the, the woman who commissioned uh, the artistic director, Diane Ritalik, who commissioned the work. She of course does not want to get Alzheimer's like her grandmother and her mother. And she, in her research, discovered that dancing, particularly ballroom dancing, is something that really can keep the brain really healthy because it's patterns, it's crossing right and left all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's okay, she now she now competes in ballroom dancing, oh, wow. which is just amazing. I like get her, and she's like in her uh, late 50s, early 60s. Anyway, so I wanted to write a tango for Diana in particular, but there's this—it's ta- called Tangled Tango. Of course, tangle referring to the tangles in the brain. But you know, one of the questions is, can you spell the word "world" backwards? Okay. Um, I'm going to give you the names of three objects.
2: Mm-mm-mm.
1: Can you repeat those three? So this idea of three words became a unifying uh, theme in the piece. Of course, the first time you hear it, it's 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 from the uh, from the from the test. You know, I'm going to give you the names of these three words. Um, Later on, th- and there is a, there is a narrator, but it's a very limited narration. She's, she mostly says, I'm going to give you, you know, she, she, um, holds together with this three words theme. So the next time you hear this, she says, um, those three words earlier, can you, can you recall them? And the person with Alzheimer's says, instead of shoe, car, whatever, I can't remember. She says, shame, stigma, fear, because as the person with Alzheimer's who realizing they're losing control, that's what they're feeling. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the three words for the, for the care partners are heartbreak, stress, resilience. And then finally um, in the, uh, the last segment, the three words are be here now.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So um, it was a huge undertaking the orchestra, you know, I, I finally got the libretto together, getting all the permissions where I needed them. Um, and the way that I wrote this is, um, I sketch, and this is how I do most composing. I sketch things out on manuscript paper um, at the piano, and then I, when I have what I feel like is pretty much the whole structure of the piece or most of the it, then I take it to uh, my notation software and start entering it and filling it out. So with this piece, I basically wrote most things as a song. Some things I conceived of totally chorally, like the opening piece I really did and a couple others. But but really, I just had this lyrical mindset, you know. I really start from there. And then I orchestrated it, and it took me like three months to orchestrate Um and uh, it was performed here in Portland. Ethan Sperry uh, and Oregon repertory singers did just an absolutely stunning. The piece ended. There were like 20 seconds of silence before anybody moved or applauded. It was really potent.
0: All right, well, on that note, we're going to listen to highlights from Shadow and Light.
1: Oh, wonderful.
0: If my listeners want to learn more about you, what is your website?
1: joanshimko.com. J O A uh, N S Z Y M K O.
0: Are you out on social media as well?
1: I use Facebook um, less and less, and maybe that's not smart. Um, but I just, I'm just very conflicted about it. I'm conflicted about what Facebook is, but I also realize that that's how a lot of people uh, share um, things that are happening. I do appear, I do check in to some Facebook groups. Like there is a, uh, um, a women conductors group and there is a, um, women's choir, uh, group that I check in on. Um, just because a lot of, I mean, I kind of made my name writing music for a women's choir. I mean, although It Takes a Village is my big hit, you know, um, a lot of conductors know me through my music for women's choir, because as I mentioned, you know, I went about creating really substantive um, literature for women's yeah. choir. So, so I'm sought out for that reason. And I, you know, I like to see what other people are doing. And, and of course I led women's choirs forever.
0: Fantastic. Well, Joan, it has been a great honor to talk to you today. Thank you for spending some time with me and for joining me on Movable Dough.
1: My pleasure. And thank you for what you're doing. And I wish you much success with your podcast.
0: My guest today was composer Joan Shimko. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to your favorite podcast provider. To hear previous episodes, visit sdcompose.com slash movabledough. If you would like to continue this conversation or share your favorite music by Joan Shimko, join us on our Facebook group, Movable Dough Listeners, and follow us on Instagram at Movable Dough Podcast. If you have a recommendation for a future guest, please email me at movabledough at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving.